The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa. Hello, I'm Faker Rothers and welcome to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. The quarterfinals are complete and Iceland become the first team to exit the Euros without losing a game. Cue devastation from the pod's panellists. A tight Group C ends predictably with Sweden finishing top, while Group D's dramatic finale sees the red flames melt Iceland hearts as Belgium make the knockout stages for the first time in their history. Karin Diakra walks into the last eight looking smug, Jonas Eidevel is looking sunburnt and the quarter-final matchups are looking tantalising. We'll look ahead to them, dissect the final four group matches, take your questions and that's today's Guardian Women's Football Weekly. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa, a proud sponsor of UEFA Women's Euro 2022. Visa knows competition is at its best when everyone truly has a chance to take part. Whether it's a player competing on a world stage or a small business taking control of their economic future, Visa recognises that we'll only see the best of all of us when everyone participates. Their technology and tools help entrepreneurs turn small ideas into big businesses, wherever they are. Find out more at theguardian.com slash all hyphen win. What a pod panel we have today. Uh, Robin Cowan, fresh from commentating in severe heat, Switzerland versus Netherlands. God, that was intense for you. Yeah, it was. I think fresh is not the right word to describe that. Gosh, yeah, it was close. The six minute VAR check didn't help when you're kind of wanting it all to be over. Yeah. Oh, my God. Painful. Um, You almost, almost became the only person apart from Tom Midler to predict Austria getting out of Group A with England. But you backtracked when I pushed you because you were fence sitting. And, I mean, we will talk in a second about your Group D predictions. While you're even on this pod, you've got zero credibility now, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, leaving the call. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, Robin exits the building. Alex Ibersetta, uh, have you been on any more walks with the Orangi? That was what you were doing the last time we spoke. Yeah, I haven't, actually, even though I probably sound like it a bit um, this time around, too. But no, I haven't. I've been hopping around mainly with Spanish fans now, actually. But yeah, I am kind of looking forward to the Netherlands hopefully getting through. I'm not going to predict that because that's probably going to be wrong, too. I'm just looking at Wembley Way just being filled up with Oranje fans. And that'll be best part of the tournament. Oh, no, I absolutely can't wait for that. Um, Moyo Abiona, a debut from the Gold Diggers podcast. How's the Euros been going for you? It's been great. It's been really good. I think... It's been everything I wanted. Like, all the people I wanted to perform have performed. So no no letdowns on my end. <laughs> but no, it's been good. It's been good. Some exciting matches. Some new people that I hadn't necessarily seen as well. Mixing up with the big guys as well. So I've been enjoying it. Well, you wait until you start making predictions on this pod. They will all come back to haunt you, I promise. Now I'm panicking. <laughs> Recorded and in history forever. Right, let's start with Group D, because I think in the end, this was Group D for drama, wasn't it? France obviously already through, but any of Iceland, Italy and Belgium could have joined them. And in the end, it's Belgium into the last eight, thanks to a 1-0 win over Italy, while Iceland drew one all with France and weren't even given the opportunity to try and get the winner. 
Let's just touch on the fact Robin went for Italy and Iceland to get out of this group in our preview pod, (laughs) which, you know, you said you were going to own it. Yeah, no, I I hold my hands up for Italy. I think they've been probably the most underwhelming um, performance at the Euros. I think I probably overhyped them. And when I really think about kind of exactly where they are as a nation, maybe we were, because they had such a good World Cup, that maybe we were kind of, yeah, overestimating them a little bit. But for Iceland, I really think that they just let this get away from them. When you, when I look back at all their games, they missed a penalty in the first one, couldn't hold on against Italy. And then yesterday, they put in a... I know France made a lot of changes, but they put in a really good performance against mm. the French. And as you said in your intro, like, going unbeaten, not going through... I feel like it's a missed opportunity for them. So what I'm saying is that I'm trying to, you know, obviously brush over the facts. I've got this completely wrong. <laughs> is, that, is that Iceland should have, I mean, they really should have gone through. They had the opportunities. It couldn't quite get there. They let you down, Robin. That's what they did. They let you personally down. You and <laughs> your credibility. Right. I feel particularly affronted by them. <laughs> The uh, fastest goal of the Euros followed then by the latest goal of the Euros about 96 minutes later. It, it kind of was a, a game of beginnings and endings, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, again, you think, oh, France is just going to run away with this like they did in the first game. But, I mean, they had two goals ruled out, a handball and offside. Yeah, I just still, after that first game for France, just not sure about them still they clearly have the firepower I mean they're the first goal was brilliant you know Mallard with a little flick and then the finish and you just think oh oh dear this is going to be a long evening for Iceland but yeah I just still I'm still unconvinced and in terms of my prediction I predicted the implosion a bit too early I'm pretty sure it's still coming and you're going to click this up when they reach the final, I'm sure. <laughs> but like, it just, I'm, there's still something just not quite right there for me. But the thing is, they're capable of winning the tournament because of the quality they have. They really are. It's just, I don't know, there's just something missing for me. You were excited, Alex, on Twitter that Corinne Diacre decided to start Melvin Mallard. Obviously, earlier in the week, really awful news that Marianne Antoinette Toto. Uh, has an ACL injury, so ruled out of the tournament. So gutting for her and for France as well. But Mallard made a pretty good case for being her replacement. Yeah, I celebrated that goal really, really hard. (laughs) It's going back to, you know, the situation that we see in Spain also. It's having these players that you know are capable of stepping into positions that are needed. And I'm not taking anything from Sar, but when you look at the, the way that Katoto plays, she's been dropping in really deep when the midfield has been stuck behind. She's been dropping in deep to collect and then making the run forward. Sara is more of a... She's a bit more static in terms of she waits to receive the ball. And it's fine when you have wingers like France do. You know, she is going to get the ball quite often. But we saw it yesterday, as Robin said, for that goal that she did, she dropped in deep, gave a little flick off, got a one-two shot. You know, it was a simple finish. It was a simple training ground finish uh, into the bottom corner where the keeper couldn't get it and it's just simple things like that and when you look at Malad she obviously plays for Leon. when Ada Hegerberg was out you know she was a player that stepped into an Ada Hegerberg goal which is you know one of the, the most prolific goal scorers in, in the world and she plays with you know as different as they are you know PSG and Leon do play quite similar so when you have PSG wingers 
with you PSG midfielders mixed in with Lyon players as well. You know, it makes sense to have her there because she's so used to playing with the style play of the players. She plays very similar to Katoto. So I was kind of really happy that kind of common sense prevailed in this sense, <laughs> and um, which doesn't happen every single time. But yeah, look, I think I think she proved herself, but I am worried that the reason why she started was because this was against Iceland, and that's not to take away from Iceland, but I feel like Korindriak would probably have that reasoning. Um, so I am curious to see who will start against Netherlands. She definitely won't start her, will she? No, I've, I've, <laughs> I've accepted it. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, common sense and Corinne Diacre do not go hand in hand, <laughs> do they? Um, we got to see more of France's fringe players last night, though, Moya, as Robin and Alex said. She's used 20 of her squad so far, Diacre, which is the most that France have ever used at a Euros. But who were you most excited to get to see play that we perhaps haven't seen much of yet? I was really excited to be fair I wouldn't say that she's a fringe player but I was really excited to see Sandy Baltimore I mean I was surprised that she hadn't started more of the games I think going into Euros I thought that she was going to be a proper integral part of the team but it seems as though she's only really now been called upon now that there's been some injuries which is interesting but obviously France have so many attacking players especially from wide that it's not really a surprise but at the same time it's interesting I think she brings exactly what Alex was just saying with uh, Mallard as well is that she brings the link-up play that you want. When she's part of the front three, it seems extra fluid as well. I feel like she links up well with not only the fullback but also the, the striker. Um, so I think that she's just someone that's easy to play with. Another person I was really wanting to see because she's just come off a great season was just Samuel Basha as well. She's been fantastic this whole year, to be honest. And I think coming off of that Champions League final, I expected her to start the first game as well. And she didn't. So I was thinking, OK, I hope that it's not something that's just... She's shining in club level, but she's not going to get the chance to shine uh, with the national team. But I was happy that she she put in a good performance yesterday. I think with with Basha, you know what you're getting in terms of, you know she can attack, you know she's solid defensively, you know she's got pace. And I think the main thing for her is just to use her as an outlet as much as possible. And that's what we got yesterday, to be honest. I think in the first half, she was getting opportunities to, to sort of bomb down the, the wing. But in the second half, it seemed like it was a bit more reduced. I don't know if it's because France started... I feel like they took their foot off the gas a bit. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it just it did seem as though the energy levels dropped. But I guess it's hard to keep your energy levels up when you you're really through. If you've not been given an opportunity in the tournament, though, you know yeah. you, you you're fighting for a starting place. Yeah, no, exactly. I I do feel like people. There were a couple of players that I couldn't feel like they could have made a claim a bit more, so that they could actually, you know, strike up an idea in the manager's mind that okay, I actually want to play. But I think at the same time, they kind of know that their manager pretty much knows who she wants to play already. Like, I don't know how much like scope they've got to actually impress enough to enter a starting eleven, And that's something that only they'll know because they've been working for for longer. But um, yeah, no, it was a good performance from the players that haven't necessarily started all the games. I was impressed. And that's probably where Iceland are going to be the most disappointed, Robin, aren't they? Because they were given an opportunity against a weakened France side. And we all had so much affection for this Iceland team. Five mums in the squad. As we say, they've not lost a, a single game and yet they're still going home. It was just really gutting for them, all, all down on their haunches at the final whistle, which never actually came, did it? <laughs> yeah, like, is it still being played? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah no, I think that was the thing. And, uh, you know, we all we all have a huge amount of affection for them. And I think there is a wider thing here when you see the, their kids on the pitch and you just think, God, 
Can you imagine being like a sort of, I don't know, five, six-year-old, seeing your mum play at a tournament like that? That must just be so awesome. And even though they're out, I just feel like that's so cool. And as I said, really gutted they're not through because I really feel like they, I think they were probably the second strongest team. And also looking ahead, without wanting to disrespect Belgium, I do think they would have given Sweden a tougher test just on the performances we've seen. You know, they've got great wide players, you know, obviously that trademark long throw, really tough, physical, difficult to to break down. And also just they're just lacking that little bit of end product. But also, but I mean, a shout out to that penalty. Wow. She took the roof off the net. It was like a goal kick, wasn't it? Um, yeah, lovely to see the scenes afterwards with the with their kids. Yeah, I think Iceland, the supermarket, are going to be devastated they're out as well because they've had so much free publicity for the last uh, couple of <laughs> weeks as well with mums going to Iceland left, right and centre. Nice tweet from uh, Christian Radnidge, I'd love your opinion on. He said, which team's fans are the panel going to miss the most? Iceland and their thunderclap, but Denmark's fans, in my opinion, were brilliant in their turnout and mass bucket hat support. Who, who's the most missed, Moyo? Oh, uh, I mean... The thunderclap, I mean, I actually do join in from, even when I'm at home, I have to join in, like, it's just a must, to be honest. Like, when I do it, my sister just look over at me like, what the hell is going on? But I have to, I have to. <laughs> you clearly weren't too damaged by England's exit in 2016 in that case, because <laughs> I, I just get shivers down my spine every time I hear the thunderclap. I think Robin might <laughs> might do the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whenever I see an Iceland player winding up for a long throw, I just, I can't. Just, yeah, flashbacks, horrible flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the team who Iceland missed out to, a, a Belgium who beat Italy thanks to a wonderful Tina De Cagni strike. She was the top scorer overall in qualification, so it only seemed fair that she got on the score sheet at some point. Um, are they the most surprising team, Alex? Belgium are a tough one to describe, I think. For, I mean, with the right reason, you know, they've been around European football for quite a long time. When you compare them to, you know, the likes of Iceland and, and Italy, they've consistently been at, at, not exactly at the top, but within, you know, these tournaments and always getting into the last tournaments. And they have players that, you know, Jenny's came in, uh, Tessa Voilard, for example, you know, these are big game players that have played at, at elite level um, for quite a long time. And for some reason, I get this really big confidence around Belgium they know what they're capable of and they've been there long enough that they will think we are this team and we should be winning these kinds of games. And that's kind of the, the feeling that I get around them. And look, they, they do try to play, you know, really good football. And, you know, for that Jenny's came in goal against France, that was a really good play. But they can't do that consistently. So they'll have these moments of brilliance where you see the qualities of these players, but they can't keep that up for the entirety of the match which is what gets me sometimes and just kind of, okay, you know you're better than this. Go on and, and just do it. But yeah, like when you look at, I think it was more down to Iceland and Italy disappointing rather than Belgium kind of getting it through. And obviously they did win against Italy. But Italy, I would say, probably had more chances to finish off the game than Belgium did and they simply didn't. And the same for Iceland. You know, Iceland, they weren't kind of just sitting back and defending against France. They were going at it and they had a lot of good chances I think they probably could have easily put away two goals. But then again, France did get two goals called off. So it could have gone either way. But yeah, Belgium are are interesting Yeah, in the sense that their their confidence is really, really high. But whether or not that's going to stick after the Sweden game, I don't know. 
Mm, we'll discuss the Sweden game in a second, but let's touch on Italy, Robin, because, you know, you and Alex have both mentioned that they've been disappointing. And after the game, the Italian coach, Milena Bertolini, rocking that suit in searing oh. temperatures. <laughs> Only an Italian could do that in the dugout. Unbelievable. Um, no sweat patches either. <laughs> Yeah, the only concession she made for that, she rolled her sleeves up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, to my allow God. a little breeze, I think. Tiny. Just up the... <laughs> like, I mean, style over comfort. I mean, you got it. you know, fair play to her. I didn't see it. Not, not a drop of sweat on her. I mean, I'd have been absolutely dying. <laughs> same, same. There would have been nothing, nothing classy about me on the touchline, that's for sure. She did imply, though, afterwards, that the expectations around her side have been a bit too high, but... I think we are all in agreement that they've just been disappointing. I think it's a bit of both, actually. As I said before, I do think possibly we were we were overhyping them because of their, their good World Cup and also just, you know, Juventus did well at the Champions League. Maybe it's a slight parallel with Spain that you kind of transfer that club, the kind of biggest club in the, uh, in the domestic league to how they should, you feel like they should perform in a tournament. I think they had a really, obviously, they had a really tough first game. And there's also parallels with Norway and and Denmark as well. You kind of have a really, one of your games goes really badly. And I just think it was really hard to recover from that. They were 5-0 down at half time, weren't they, in that first game? And it's just, I can't imagine what, you know, you just think, Phew. All players say, oh, we just got to put it aside. But ha- that must be really hard. <laughs> it's not as easier said than done, isn't it? Well, we saw it with Norway, didn't we? Mm. 8-0 and they just couldn't then get over the line against against Austria. Moyo, Alex has touched upon Sweden as Belgium's next opponents and, and Jonas Eidevel could barely contain his delight that they were going to be uh, the opponents in the quarterfinals. But they perhaps should be a bit wary of, of the Belgians. As Alex said, that they, they have got quality when they decide to turn it on. Yeah, I think one thing with the Belgium team that we can see is that they've got it seems like they've got a real big sense of self-awareness. So, like, they know when a team is better than them in certain positions. So they're not going to overdo it. They're not the kind of team that's just going to leave, like, the whole back line exposed when they know that the opposition team is better than them. And I think some Sweden fans potentially think that it's just going to be, like, all alleyways are open and they're just going to run through, like, with Sweden's attacking line that's going to get through every single time. But I think, obviously, Belgium are going to take that game as Sweden have superior opposition players to us, how best can we, how best can we contain them first? I think it's going to be a sense of containment first and foremost before actually attacking, and the aim is definitely going to be to frustrate Sweden because I think we've seen that Sweden can get frustrated when things aren't necessarily going their way, and I think if Belgium can do that for as long as possible, they'll definitely start, like put themselves in good stead with a chance. What I would say is they've got no pressure on them at all. It's, yeah, nothing they? to lose at this point. Literally no one thinks they're going to beat Sweden. So I think that could work in their favour. I really, I don't think Sweden will take them lightly. I don't think their manager will let them. But they've definitely got the kindest quarterfinal, I'd say, Sweden. Yeah. The kindest. That's a, that's a, a nice way <laughs> a nice way to look at it. Uh, that's it for part one of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. In part two, we'll look back at Group C.
Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa, who as well as being a proud sponsor of UEFA Women's Euro 2022, are helping support its growth through a number of different global initiatives. One of those has been taking place in one of this summer's host cities, Southampton, where Utilita have been running football camps with support from Visa. Southampton midfielder Shannon Sivright's been helping with the camps as part of her role as inclusion coordinator at the Saints Foundation. Shannon, lovely to see you. Can you tell us a bit more about what your role actually involves? So part of it is looking at our female engagement across all of our charitable projects. Other elements to my role is managing and overseeing our disability provision at the foundation and then some community-based open access sessions for individuals to get involved in football and sport. That sounds absolutely incredible. The football camps that Southampton have been running with support from Visa, why did Southampton want to set these up in the first place? What was the idea behind them? I think it's just an incredible opportunity for individuals within our local community to engage in football, engage in like Southampton Football Club, because football can be obviously so important for like social development as well. And I think Southampton Football Club like, holds that like really important to them. Yeah. What kind of feedback do you get from the youngsters? I know the girls that were involved in the recent football camp absolutely loved it. You should see their like doors drop when you say that you'll be able to like train at the Southampton Football Club training ground. And one player in particular is going to be gaining more than more than most because they're going to have the chance to watch an England match. How important is it for young girls to have the opportunity to discover and play football and, and be able to watch it on, on the European stage as they will? I think it's incredibly important to expose individuals within our community with that opportunity because it's so important for young people to have like positive role models. And I think they certainly can see that more so in women's football now and certainly um, with the England game as well being hosted at St Mary's Stadium. What an opportunity for our local community to be able to watch that. Shannon, thank you so much for sharing with us how Southampton and Visa are helping support the women's game. And now back to the show. Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Plenty of goals in Group C, although maybe not as much chaos perhaps as we would have liked. Uh, Sweden and the Netherlands progressing from this group in first and second respectively, which is pretty much what we all guessed before a ball was kicked. But uh, we had some twists and turns to get there, didn't we? You were at Switzerland 1, the Netherlands 4, Robin. And there was a point here where it looked like perhaps Switzerland would be able to knock the Dutch out. I mean, that miss from Sau at one all looks particularly bad now. Yeah, although I would qualify that was actually really good goalkeeping from Van Domslo. He's had an incredible tournament. What a story, you know, coming in, barely had it. I think she only had one cap and then she she comes in. She's been absolutely unbelievable. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit like what Alex said about um, Belgium, like Switzerland. When they were on top, they were all over them. They had all these chances. They didn't take them. And then actually, as soon as Leah Volti went off injured, that's when the Netherlands started scoring loads of goals. So 4-1 really doesn't reflect that game at all. The Netherlands have a lot of issues and I understand they've had a difficult tournament with COVID injuries, but they were not convincing at all. Alex, the, the Netherlands kind of decided in the last five minutes of the game that they really wanted to have a go at Sweden's goal difference. Three goals from the 84th minute onwards, thanks to their substitutes. How impressed have you been with them when they have brought on their younger players? You know, we've seen their substitute make an effect immediately. 
Um, we saw against Sweden, you know, when a Victoria Pilova came on to the right wing, immediately she was outrunning, you know, a person like, say, a Hannah Glass or a Magda Eriksson, you know. That's not easy. And she was getting right by the touchline. She was making those crosses. She made an effect immediately. And we've seen it, you know, the goal scorers have been the substitutes, have been the young players. You know, we go back to the keeper. She is a young player that hasn't gotten the opportunity yet. And look, she's thriving under the pressure of of kind of stepping into that role. And that doesn't even begin to say that the youngsters that have been left on the bench that haven't been used much. Um, I'm a big yeah. fan of Esme Brutz. I think she's a brilliant young talent and she hasn't been able to play that much. You know, she came on yesterday, but you haven't really been able to see her. But the Netherlands are that team that have their experienced players that you know are always going to start ahead of the youngsters. You know, no one's going to start over a Shady Espitze, a Vivian Miedema, you know, Lika Martins, which is, you know, fair because they are really amazing players. But I think the Netherlands were perhaps not underrated, but because a lot of people don't really know the young players, you know, me included, I still don't know quite a few of them. You don't really see them having a deep bench. But then when you look at the effect that these substitutes have on the pitch, it is really impressive. And that could be, you know, a big advantage going forward because you have these players that nobody really knows about and they're obviously good enough to make an impression at a big tournament already. We were discussing that actually after the game, like, because Pelover, I feel like she's probably been their best player, like, in terms of, I know she's not started a game, but she's come on and impacted. But then you can't, politically, you can't really drop Lika Martins, even though she's not, she's not really performed. They might have Vivian Miedemar back. Can't really drop Jill Rod or Vanderdonk. So it's actually, it's it's just, there's basically just no space for her. But I, I feel for her because she's been really, she looks very, very sharp. Good to come off the bench, I guess. Isn't that where you need a Serena Wiegmann, perhaps? And mm. Mark Parsons might need to, you know, channel his, the former coach's you know energy what, with that. Serena Wiegmann was not that manager with the Netherlands. I must say that because she was still kind of an old timer in terms of those players never you know Joe Ward even struggled to get a lot of playing yeah. time on just Serena Vigman. I think what what the point is that she likes a consistent team doesn't she mm. and um yeah I'm not sure what Mark Parsons will do but I can't see him starting say a a Breutz or a look to just because they performed well when they came on I just think they really miss Miedemar don't they and uh, I don't know what state she's in but um if she's not fit for against France that's a huge, huge blow. It felt at, at times that Netherlands were playing as if they still thought Viv was up there. Some of the balls they were putting in, it was as though they thought they had more of like a target number nine up there. You definitely can't play that way with Berenstein up front. I think the best we've seen of Berenstein is when she's getting the ball in quickly and in behind. And they weren't really doing that yesterday. And what I've seen that's funny this Euros as well is that it seems as though sometimes like the team starts playing the way the original, like the starting eleven, want to play once the starting eleven players are off. So, like I've seen it with England as well. Like sometimes they're putting in loads of crosses when like Russo's not on the pitch, for example, and then when Russo is on the pitch, they're not putting in as many crosses. It's similar to that, and I think it's just like being able to adapt quicker on the pitch of like, okay, this is who's playing in front of me. This is how they like to receive the ball, and I feel like Netherlands didn't necessarily do that in the first half. That's a really good point because actually they could have had a penalty it was rightly overturned yeah, yeah. But that was the one time they went long to her and she's so rapid yeah that you know that that caused them problems so yeah no I think that's a really good point 
Sweden 5, Portugal 0. I mean, it was a pretty simple win in the end for, for Sweden. Portugal conceding more goals from set pieces. Seven of the 10 goals they've conceded at the tournament came that way. Francisco Neto, Alex, dropped Ines Pereira for this game. But I mean, it doesn't really seem like the problem had anything to do with her height, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, look, if you look at the way Portugal have just defended set pieces this entire group match, you understand why they're conceding so much. Yeah. It's a mess in the box. They're committing like five players to the front post for whatever reason that may be. And yes, maybe the height does have to do, you know, with the difficulties of, of going up for a head. But, you know, just do what I do. Just, you know, pull their, their kit down by the waist or something. You know, it's not that bad. <laughs> but their defensive mess on set pieces is the answer that you need to the reason why they've conceded so much. They, I don't know if, if it's just not prepared or if the players don't really know what to do or if the players just aren't, you know, that's just their biggest weakness. <laughs> Who knows? That's not how to defend set pieces against, you know, the likes of Sweden, for example, who are Scandinavian goddesses that are tall. <laughs> so, <laughs> Scandinavian goddesses that are tall. <laughs> Best way to describe Swedes. Um, Sweden finally got going, it felt, in this game, albeit for, for for different reasons. Do you feel like they've just been warming up this whole time, Robin? Quite possibly, yeah. They were very much hyped. A lot of kind of um, women's football journalists who follow the game were tipping them to win because they've come so close into the two previous tournaments. So I think everyone was a little bit underwhelmed with their first two performances. But again, when you look at it's like England, you look at their depth. Their attacking quality, they've got really good, solid defence as well. Although, obviously, Portugal weren't the most difficult opposition to break down, especially from those set pieces. Yeah, I think that's a, a statement win for them, definitely. I feel like in the Switzerland game especially, before Benison scored that goal, they were very underwhelming. I thought Switzerland sort of acquitted themselves well. And it didn't seem as though there was much of a difference between like the level of Switzerland and the level of Sweden. And I think something you want with a team like Sweden is for them to impose themselves on every game. So like no matter if like the opposition they're playing isn't as good as them, you want them to put their foot down and say, this is Sweden and this is how we play. And I felt as though they were just going with the flow in games almost. Jonas like alluded to it after one of the games, I think it was a Switzerland game. And he was like, yes, like, Sweden have won, but don't be deceived that like, that was not a good performance and that performance isn't going to be enough to carry them through. So I think they were trying to sort of make things right in that Sweden-Portugal game. They've been such good fun, though. I'm really I'm going to miss Portugal as much as I'm going to miss Iceland, I have to say. They've uh, done themselves a lot of favours in this tournament. Uh, but we do have all our quarterfinals set. Uh, England versus Spain, France against the Netherlands, Sweden, Belgium, and then Germany, Austria. So, of course... We had to get our favourite Austrian correspondent back on to have a quick chat about them making the quarterfinals. Tom Midler, lovely to see you. Hello, what a delight to be back. That means Austria have done well. I'm so proud. <laughs> I know. Well, listen, you predicted that they were going to go through. Robin almost did, but she backtracked on it and she's regretting that now. But it kind of, for the rest of us, perhaps, was a little bit unexpected. But that win over Norway felt comfortable. Yeah, I think the only thing I was a bit uncomfortable with was the fact that they were sort of labelled by some as favourites because of the Norway-England result. And I don't think that was ever the truth, really. You know, obviously Norway did fail to recover from that in time. But I thought it was really brave from Irina Furman to basically say, look, 
we're not the favourites, but we're going to go out and play to win because we deserve this and we believe that we can beat them. And true to her word, as she was in all three group games, they went out and played the way they wanted to play. And, uh, and they got the result at the end of the day with what I thought was a fantastic quality goal, probably the best goal that Austria have scored in, in this Euros for sure. How much of a, and apologies if I'm being really ignorant and just looking at proximity, but how much of a derby is, is Germany-Austria? Massive. It's the absolutely ideal draw here. It's the the comparison I would give is like Scotland v England. You know, it's not going to be easy for Austria. Everyone knows that you're always the outsider when when you're Austria and you're playing against Germany. But it also is great for the sort of casual public as well because I think the casual public will tune into this one a lot more now. It's you know if it was if Austria v Spain something like that, the odds would be stacked against them in a similar way. But against Germany, it just means more. It's something very different and it has the the potential to be a, a very very memorable game. You know, any time that Austria have defeated Germany in in men's football, it's gone down. You know, it's etched in history uh, in the Austrian football annals basically. So if they do it again this time, it's a chance for the women to write some history and and that's what you want at a major tournament, isn't it? Just to be in these games. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think most people, having looked at the Germans, have said they're favourites for the for the tournament overall. But because it's a derby, if you like, there's an extra edge to it. Could they cause a really big upset? I really think they could. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that they will or they should, but I think they could. You know, they've been so honest so far in a way I think I mean you can hear I'm a bit hoarse actually because I've been you know screaming my way through the group stages supporting them (laughs) and the Norway game especially was a good one but um, what I really like about this Austria team is that everything they've said that they wanted to do they've gone and done it they played I would term it as pretty much the perfect group stage and it's hard to explain that to people obviously as they lost to England that's not exactly what you want but they played a game of percentages there and they were never going to be favourites against England but if you play that game 10 times maybe they come away with a couple of one all draws maybe they sneak a 1-0 win once or twice and there's nothing else that you can ask for when you play against a bigger team like that and I'm sure they'll set up in the same way against Germany they've been fantastic at winning balls back their problem has continually been turning that into dangerous opportunities. Um, but everybody's having that that trouble, really, or most teams are having that trouble, not not England so much. But um, I like that they brought in players, you know, um, Irina Furman said, let's bring on Hickelsberger Fuller and she's good at running against opponents. Let's see what it does. Straight away, early on in the game against Northern Ireland, those runs had led to a free kick, which led to the goal. So it seems like the pieces are kind of falling into place for Austria at the moment. Is it right to say, Tom, that a lot of them play in the, the German league, don't they? So I guess that could plays their advantage a little bit. They kind of know almost what to expect from some of the individuals they might be up against. Yeah, that's that's very much the case. There was a bit of that sort of spice in the England game as well, actually, with players like mm. Manuela Zinsberger, you know, lots of Arsenal teammates in there. But now, if we just say, let's pick out Sarah Zadradzil, who plays for Bayern Munich. I think she's got six Bayern Munich teammates who are in this Germany side. So they know how they play, you know, they're good friends. And uh, that does add an extra layer to this kind of game. And who knows, you know, sometimes that can be a bit of a an advantage as well can't it obviously it works both ways but probably the underdogs gain more from that than than the favorites I would I would argue I find it quite fascinating that in the opening game against England everybody was talking about how poor England were as opposed to the fact that Austria nullified their chances quite a lot and it just shows actually what what this Austria side can do against bigger teams yeah, they'll definitely be looking to to do it the same way. I think I mentioned the last time I was on, it's, it's a little bit risky when you play this kind of passive game of lining up against your opponents, trying to nullify their threats. It, it means you can lose your identity, but Austria seemed to have a way of doing that without kind of losing their identity because they're not an all-out gung-ho attacking team anyway. So it's not like they stifle that side. Um, and if they can get that balance right, I really think they, they will be dangerous. And honestly, you know, obviously when you when you win your group, you win the group of death like Germany have, 
you you play against the second place team, of course. But I think they would have uh, probably not been too happy to see Austria sneak into that second spot. And, uh, you know, the Norway game was also a good test, playing against a team with with a lot of good quality players and, and having to go and do it your way. And I'm glad that, you know, they didn't scrape over the line. I thought they, they really outplayed Norway and, and were well worthy of the win. And people keep forgetting that they made the semi-finals in 2017 as well. Um, I've also seen you on Twitter in a Spain shirt, Tom. Uh, we need to discuss this. <laughs> Are you backing them against England? Absolutely not. I, actually, for those who know me, I'm a massive football shirt collector and I've got a huge amount of football shirts on. I'm wearing an Austria shirt right now. And yeah, I, I've got a massive collection at home. The Spain one hadn't been worn for a while. I've got my England women's shirt ready for Wednesday. So don't have a go at me for that one. <laughs> I promise it meant nothing. I feel like Pierre Luigi Colina when he tried on that AC Milan shirt a few years ago. <laughs> there was nothing in it, I promise. Brilliant stuff. Listen, we wish you the best of luck. Um, and we hope after the quarterfinals that we'll have you back on to discuss it. I'm sure we'll have you back on regardless. Tom, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Cheers. Wonderful stuff, Tom Midler there. Right, what do we all think about the the quarterfinals then? Who's making it to the last four? I mean, that potential Germany-France matchup could be very tasty, Moyo. You're nodding your head as if to say, yes, bring me all of that action. Yes, because to be honest, that side of the draw especially has the teams that I thought were the biggest threats to England winning the Euros. For the, so the fact that they're going to be out, like only England can only get one of those teams if they make it to the like if they make it to the final. I think that's good for England. I think those games are going to be really tough. I think whichever team doesn't make it to the final is going to be extremely disappointed. I think with France they're going to be disappointed not because they feel like they've been playing to the level that deserves to be in the final, but I think France as a nation expect to be winning major honours. And I think with Germany, I feel as though they think they're playing at the level that should be winning major tournaments. So one of them's more about form and one of them's more about like the history of, of the team. It's going to be a good game, I think. The one that I find most fascinating is is France-Netherlands in particular, because when you talk about form versus history, you're talking about a France side that have never gone past the quarterfinal stage and a Netherlands side who aren't playing at their best at the moment and are under a little bit of a, a revolution under Mark Parsons, but won it in 2017 and have great history in, in, in major tournaments getting to the final of the 2019 World Cup. So for me, could that be another, almost a, a, an upset, Robin? Yeah, I think you, you've, You've put that perfectly because, yeah, I think possibly from the outside, France will be seen as favourites. But when you do look at their history, it's so poor in the knockout stages, so poor. I think on paper, they should win this. But then a bit like, you know, when Netherlands faced Portugal, they were struggling and then Van der Donk spanked one into the top corner. So they can, they have that. They can have, you know, they can just do that out of nowhere. This one is really hard to predict because they both clearly, as we've seen, have flaws, but they also have incredible attacks and a lot of quality. So I guess it's who limits the mistakes the most and has the kind of most consistent back line, I suppose. So, yeah, it's this is going to be really interesting because I don't really think there is a clear favourite from that one, actually. I feel as if that one could go to penalties. So I'm 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 waiting for that prediction to bite me in the backside and and France win five nil. But I mean, Netherlands don't really like a penalty no. shootout, to be honest. <laughs> very very true. Um, listen, Alex, 
Bear in mind that you are on the uh, pod with three England fans, but England, Spain, uh, Spain have, you have to say, been a bit disappointing, but England have to be wary of them. Yeah, it's 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 a hard one to call in the sense that it's again, you know, it's form against maybe club level history, perhaps. When you look at obviously England are have been consistent. Um they've they're I mean, they're a beast right now. It's really hard to think about something that could stop them. But then you look at Spain and the players that they have, and you know that a lot of the players on the England team have lost to these players in a big, you know, fashion. You know, Chelsea players have lost to Barcelona in the final. Man City lost to Barcelona and then to Real Madrid in the Champions League, you know, consecutive years. So you have that kind of, I don't know if it would be more of a footballistic factor or a mental factor of, you know, a Millie Bright coming up against a Mariona or an Aitana and Patri and, you know, maybe getting a little bit of PTSD there. And it sounds stupid to say, but England's strengths go to Spain's weaknesses and Spain's yeah. strengths go to England's weaknesses. I think now the biggest challenge that England are going are gonna to have is, you know, they've gone under Serena Wigman and now they're keeping possession a bit more than they, than they used to. And, you know, we see Spain as little as they create, they're still getting 70% possession against their opponents. So how England react to that is going to be important. And I think going off of what I've just said, England might have the edge because of, yes, they don't have possession. You know, Lauren Hemp is going to be high pressing. Beth Mead is going to be high pressing. Ellen White is going to be there for the top in. So I think England have the strength to be able to pull it off against Spain. But Spain then again have the ability to pull something out of nothing at the end of the day. All but one of their goals in the group stages came from headers. That's not Spain. That's not Spain's players. It it doesn't make any sense. Um, I think from the qualifications leading up to the tournament, I think it was just like a 7% of all their goals came from headers. You know, Spain haven't really clicked in the sense of what they know. And I think that's not their fault. I think that's more down to selection. But yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting one. And I sadly do have to give the edge to England, mostly because of, of the confidence that these players are filled in and they know that these players can cause problems. And I think England will have the confidence to kind of brush that aside and just get the job done. Alex wrote a really good piece for The Analyst about sort of analysing Spain and, and kind of where they're going wrong a little bit. And uh, Alex, I think the main takeaway was that the manager's kind of been not really like rotating personnel that much, but actually just their positions, hasn't he? And not trying to fill that massive puteus-shaped hole in this team, which is is kind of struggling to do that, which is fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it just, uh, there's just different solutions and, it is, it is funny because David Menayo from Marca, a Spanish newspaper, he asked, you know, Jorge Villa all these questions that were, you know, why aren't you playing Amayur Sarriegui? Why are you doing three different lineups? And he dodged all the questions because I don't even think he knows what he's doing wrong. Um, so his answer to that question was, no matter who's in that position, they're going to be doing the same thing. And if you're taking that approach to fill in a gap that Alexia Puteas is filled behind, that's probably not the right approach that you should be taking. Um, you should probably be taking the approach to finding your player strengths, um, which obviously he yeah. doesn't he doesn't necessarily do. But yeah, you know, Spain have, and it's a shame to see because Spain have the potential and they have the young players unlike any other team. You know, we saw against Denmark at halftime when Olga Carmona came on, when Marta Cardona came on, 
you know, Leila Wahabi had had a good tournament and Olga Carmona got a shot on, on goal, you know, within the first minute or two that she came on. Um, so th- there's players there to live up to the Spain potential, but they're just not being used right. And, and we're seeing kind of this, this flop. Gosh. Well, that means, bearing in mind what our predictions are like on this pod, that Spain are going to knock England out at this rate, I think. Um, Moyo, which quarterfinals are you going to see? Uh, I'm going to the England game. I think I'm going to France-Netherlands. Like it. Two cracking games, hopefully. Uh, Robin, what are you going to be commentating on? Well, England, and I just need to apologise immediately to Alex because she sent me a nice voice note of all the Spanish names, but I'm going to absolutely butcher them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there's one reason to be grateful that Iceland are out, I would I would suggest. Yeah, uh, the, no, I didn't want to say one. that, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have done it for them. <laughs> but yeah. If England get to the finals, I presume you would be on commentary duty for that. Have you thought about your they think it's all over line if they were going to win it? Oh, no, no, no. As I say, I'm being a footballer one game at a time. I'm Millie Brighting this <laughs> one game at a time because I think this is the thing, right? England will be favourites going into this, but Spain haven't clicked yet and it's very possible they will click and it will be very difficult to stop them. I'm not saying that means they'll win, but they haven't shown what they can do yet. So wait and see. We'll wait and see because, yeah, I do. There's there's so much more. And I can imagine Alex, this is the frustration that she knows how good the potential is and haven't seen it at all yet save it for the world cup don't get it out here (laughs) don't ruin our euros (laughs) (laughs) right listen it's been an absolute delight moyo well done on your debut great to have you with us thanks for having me thanks for having me really enjoyed it alex i'd love to say good luck spain but you know where my allegiances lie (laughs) i'll say good luck to myself i need it yeah (laughs) robin always a pleasure Uh, pull those splinters out (laughs) never I've learnt my lesson (laughs) from making predictions never again no for none of us Uh, that's all for today's Women's Football Weekly we'll be back on Friday as we find out who our first semi-finalists are the Guardian's Women's Football Weekly is produced by Lucy Oliver and Jesse Parker Humphreys with additional help from Silas Gray and George Cooper. Music composition was from Laura Iredale and our executive producers are Chessie Bent, Max Sanderson and Danielle Stevens. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa.